Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to episode 61 of the Ad Nauseam Podcast. My name is... Dr. Jeffrey T. Winkle. I'm here late night in the vomitorium, as always with my good friend and co-host, Dr. David C. Noe. How are you doing tonight, doctor? I'm doing well, Jeff. Thank you for that uh, rousing intro. Yeah. Are you feeling all right? You look a little disgruntled across no, the table. No, no, no. I'm completely gruntled. Completely gruntled? Yes. Excellent. I take the eye out of irascible, as we say. I poke the eye out of irascible. So you're, you're just, you're irascible? I'm irascible. Irascible tonight? <laughs> Uh, I'm well, I'm feeling excited tonight. I was going to ask, Jeff, yeah. how are you feeling? I'm, I'm feeling good, right? This it's, is a, it's a feelings-based culture, isn't it? It is. So we really have to ask how each other are feeling. Oh, how are you feeling? Oh, how are you feeling? Because it's all about the feelings. It is. That's right. Well, I've got some good feels tonight. It. Yeah, I'm excited about we're we're, uh, we're revisiting Ovid mm-hmm. after our short break away from Ovid. Mm-hmm. Um, got some good stories on tap. Excited. There's a lot of petrification going on tonight. Okay. Uh, more more metamorphosizing, mm-hmm. uh, as as they say. I'm looking forward to this. I am too. Yep. I love Ovid. I can relate. I love the the brilliance of his diction, the vivacity of his imagination, the way he selects abstract nouns and strings them together. Mm-hmm. I really I'm drawn to the way that he kind of teases you in he invites you to kind of compare these stories to each other and like i found like when i was looking at our two stories tonight and i thought i think okay i've got the connections but as soon as you think you've got them pinned down there's something else that throws you off the trail that's right he pulls the couch right from underneath you yeah every single time so but that's we're getting ahead of things right we have um, as always a shout out tonight we do we're going international for the second week in a row yeah yeah so this goes to a man named ron chalice and Ron says, I majored in Latin, Greek, and ancient history in my BA and MA at Macquarie University here in Sydney, Australia. I'm probably mispronouncing Macquarie. That's, that's how I would do it. Okay, so, maybe, so we're both Ron, wrong. Ron, <laughs> Ron can correct us. Ron says, as an undergraduate, I threw myself into the ancient world and was captivated by Greece and Rome. I like this guy already, don't right. you? Yeah, definitely. Throwing himself into things. Yes. But Egypt did not do it for me. Now, Ron... You got to run down Egypt. Yeah, I don't think that was necessary. Why did he throw that gratuitous? In there? And it, then, and then, what? We had to read it on the air. <laughs> we had no choice. It's too late. Right. He says, "I taught in public high schools, then joined the classics department at Asham School." Did I get that right? I think that's right. Okay. I then had a career change and headed learning and development for the Australian Federal Police in Sydney. Wow, that is a change. That's not only a change; that's a huge amount of responsibility. No doubt. Just think about all the boomerangs flying around <laughs> down there. He's got to police all of them. All of them, exactly mm-hmm. right. Is that is that what you think of? We think of Australia. Think, no think kangaroos and boomerangs. Well, I think of uh, Ayers Rock. <laughs> Ayers Rock, of course. Right. Yeah, I think of the uh, Sydney Opera House. Mm-hmm. So picturesque. Yes. And I think of a massive continent, which I understand is mostly empty. Yes, yes, the the great outback. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think of uh, Captain James Cook, mm-hmm. or is it Captain Crunch? Uh, New Zealand, Captain Crunch. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I also think about beer, right? Fosters. Right. Right. <laughs> I think of beer. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> But to get back to, uh, to, Ron, to Ron, you yes. want to read the, the next part here? Yeah, so he, he says that uh, after that gig, uh, the classroom again beckoned. He started teaching Latin at Regent's Park Christian School, stemming from a plea from the head of secondary. Who was that? His wife. Oh, <laughs> good one, Ron. That the school needed a better way to improve how English is understood. Oh, don't we all? So oh. like Odysseus, he's comparing himself to Odysseus. Oh, come on. I like this guy. I do too. Yeah, he, yeah. Th- he threw himself into the Odyssey. Good job, Ron. <laughs> so like Odysseus, he says he has returned and started a new phase in Latin language learning in his own little kingdom. All right. Yes. Ithaca, just outside of Sydney. Right. He also threw some some Australian uh, Aboriginal slang. Yes, there, he did. He? I love this. Brand new word for me. And I have a good friend who lives down in Australia in Melbourne. Uh, she got her shout out some months ago, uh-huh. but uh, Janet knows who she is. And uh, he says, teaching remotely is hard yaka. 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 And what is yaka? Well, uh, I looked it up. It means physically draining work. It comes from a word yaga, meaning work in the Yagara language of the Brisbane area. So yaga comes from the Yagaran people? Yeah, the Yagaran people. Hardworking people. They are. Yeah. Right. It's hard yaka. 
You've been down to the uh, Brisbane area? You're much of a, a Brisbaner? I would love to go to Australia, but I've mm-hmm. never been. Uh, I haven't either. It's about as far away on the planet from here as you can nearly get. It's antipodal, right? It, it is antipodal. You ever dig through your backyard and pop up uh, outside of Melbourne? That was I was that was the plan as a kid once mm-hmm. I think I made it about three feet and I got I got bored. Well that digging is let me tell you hard yaka. That is hard yaka. <laughs> well thanks Ron for your interest and your your good humor and keep uh, keep up the great work down there. Yeah keeping the flame alive, teaching uh, languages, classics down there. We're so grateful. Yes. All right, I'm going to take the opening quote tonight. Well, if you insist. I insist. This comes from uh, Alan Griffin writing broadly on Ovid's Metamorphoses back in the late 70s. Okay. Yes. And he writes, The amount of Ovid's surviving poetry is almost exactly equal to the sum total of poetry which has come down to us from Lucretius, Catullus, Virgil, Horace, Tibullus, and Propertius. That stat kind of surprised me. It's just the, the huge amount of... Ovidian poetry that we have. Yes, I'm yeah. surprised because of Virgil. I know Catullus has a very small collection of right. poems, and uh, Tibullus and Propertius, not especially prolific. But if you, Ho- you're Horace, lumping Horace and Virgil together. Yeah, Horace turned out a lot. He did. And yeah. uh, Virgil, you know, 12 books of the Aeneid and Georgics. Yeah, and yeah. the Eclogues. But yeah, Ovid was prolific. Yep. He goes on Ovid wrote because he was a compulsive writer. A poet utterly in love with poetry, as Gilbert Murray aptly put it. He was the only classical poet to leave an autobiography, and in it he records that as a boy, I tried to write words freed from rhythm, yet all unbidden song would come upon befitting numbers, and whatever I tried to write was verse. So he couldn't help it. He was constantly scatting and bebopping all over the place. Right. Yeah. He's like a rapper. Yes. If I may say, a very elevated one, obviously. Yeah. But he just cannot speak without rhyme. Right. The quantity of Ovid's poetry, of course, cannot be made an excuse for lack of quality, but no indulgence need to be, need be begged and no allowances made for his masterpiece, The Metamorphoses. Mm-hmm. So I was looking for a quote that was kind of more specific to um, kind of our stories. The two vignettes. The two vignettes today. And I, I, I couldn't find anything that kind of leapt out at me or would I think would be interesting for our audience. But mm-hmm. I thought this was a, a kind of a grandiose passage kind of setting up you know, the, the elevation of this particular right. work of, of Ovid. Yeah, search thee in vain. So Gilbert Murray, uh, who is quoted here by Alan Griffin, is one of my two favorite Gilberts of the uh, 20th century. Can I guess the other Gilbert? Yes. Is it Gilbert Gottfried? No. No? <laughs> no, it's Gilbert Hyatt. Oh, Gilbert Hyatt, okay. Gilbert Murray and Gilbert Hyatt, two two great Gilberts. Gotcha. We should do an episode on great Gilberts of the 20th century. Paul Gilbert? We, maybe, but okay. he's not a classicist. No, he's not. And he's still alive, so we got to include him in the 21st century. Gotcha, yes, yes. But he says, uh, Gilbert Murray aptly put it, that um, Ovid was a poet utterly in love with poetry. Now, he's cribbing a little bit on... Quintilian. Remember that Quintilian quote we used in a an episode past? Wait, you got to remind me. This is so well, I don't remember. Ago. I don't remember the name of it. But Ovid, uh, according to Quintilian, was in love with his too in love with his own genius. Too in love with his own genius. Yes. Yes. Okay. And that's entirely appropriate. Right. And that's a a criticism on Quintilian's part. Yes, right? I think so. He was kind of brought low by his own. Uh, Correct. Yes. Too okay. much talent. Too much technical ability. Right. The kind of person who isn't able to innovate in any one genre because they have so much technical ability in all of them. Yes. Right. Should we get to it? Let's get to it. Okay. Where are we, where are we starting? What are we doing well, today, Dave? We're going to offer the listener, dear listener, we're going to offer you a look at two different episodes from Ovid's Metamorphoses, two vignettes or sketches. The first one comes to us from book four, and it's a story of transformation, petrification. Yes. Saxifying. I don't know. Uh, during which the character Perseus has an encounter with shaggy old Atlas mm-hmm. and the Titan, and it turns him into stone. Yes. There's a spoiler alert. And then we're going to go on to book six, to uh, one that I believe you chose. Yes, uh, uh, the uh, the tragedy of Niobe and her children, mm-hmm. which also ends with a petrification. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's at least one major uh, theme kind of linking these stories together. It's turned to stone. Turned to stone. Okay, so as we get into the story of Perseus and Atlas, that's mm-hmm. where we're headed, we have to have um, a gentle on-ramp, you might say. Okay. And the on-ramp here is actually Cadmus and Harmonia. All right. So Cadmus was turned into a snake, as was his wife Harmonia, who herself was the daughter, if I'm not mistaken, of Ares and Aphrodite. Yes, that is correct. Yes. Yes. Okay, good. Yeah. Thank you, Ed McMahon. <laughs> You are correct, sir. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So the story picks up and uh, Perseus has just removed the head of Medusa. 
So this is book four, and we're going to read a little bit from the Lombardo translation, then look at a little Latin hexameter from Ovid himself, mm-hmm. and then back to the Atlas story. Okay, I got to ask you a question before okay. we start, though. So you said this the story picks up right after the beheading of Medusa. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe some of our listeners are saying, why would you gloss over that incredible, famous, wonderful story and instead choose this other adventure of Perseus? So, so when you were thinking about this episode, why did you say, oh, that would be a good one? Ovid does this all the time. Okay. He does this all the time. For example, I think it is partly explained by the anxiety of influence. Uh, Later on in the book, I do not remember the, in the epic, I do not remember the book, but I'm going to say it's 13 off the top of my head. The fall of Troy is recorded. Okay. And instead of recounting the fall of Troy, as Virgil does in book two of the Aeneid, the fall of Troy is confined to a single line in Ovid's Metamorphoses. The most famous story of all of mythology is just a single line. And he says words to this effect. And so Troy fell and with it Priam's house. And that's it. And that's it. And so, you know that Ovid's doing that deliberately. To, just to irritate people? Yes. <laughs> and yes. And yeah. also to say, I don't need to do what other people have done. Hmm. I'm not going to compete on their terms. Right, 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 right. Exactly. So he's, this is him being, again, slippery and unpredictable. Right. Once again. And there's a certain brilliance in it. Yeah. We've talked about this before, but uh, if, you, if you want to be great in a particular category, you master the technical form of that category, that skill, and that art, and then you have to introduce some subtle innovation. Right. But you have to prove, first of all, that you can meet other people's expectations, I would say, mm-hmm. before you innovate. Right. And then it seems shocking and interesting. Right. But then you, I think you also run the risk once you start branching out of, of alienating people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I mean, we know that Ovid alienated some people at the very, very top. Definitely. But um, yeah, I, it, it would be wonderful to know kind of how this stuff played to an audience that, you know, went to the concert to hear the greatest hits. Right. And he he does one verse from one line that says, let, right. me, show, let me show you something else. Yes. Right. <laughs> well, we know that his love poetry was extraordinarily successful even in his own lifetime. Okay. As for the metamorphoses, I know it was very, very successful later on. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure about its reception in his own lifetime. His own, his own day. So Lombardo says, the other, that is Perseus, was soaring through thin air on whistling wings, bearing the snake-haired monster's memorable spoils. As the victor hovered over the Libyan desert, bloody drops from the gorgon's head fell down and were received by Earth, who reanimated them as various species of snakes. And this is why the land there swarms with poisonous vipers. A little uh, etiology there. Exactly. Yes. You remember when Cato was slugging through the desert? Cato Eudicensis? Yes. The guy who killed himself? Right. Uh, 46, I think, uh, during the uh, Civil Wars. Well, Lucan describes all of the snakes that attacked the uh, army of Cato. Oh, yeah. Because North Africa was famous for its poisonous uh, vipers. This is here's your mythical origin story. That's right. This is where it came from. Yep. Brain coral as well. That's where it came from, too. It's from the drops of blood falling into the ocean. Oh, okay. From Medusa's head. Nice. So, and were received by Earth, who reanimated them, etc. From there, he, Perseus, was driven by conflicting winds, like a rain cloud through vast regions of air. So what do we have there? Epic simile. Just one line. He flew over the whole world, looking down from dizzying heights on distant lands. Three times he saw the cold stars of the bears, and thrice the crab's claws. What is Ovid doing here, Dr. Winkle? Well, Well, he's giving us a nice little tour of the universe. Yes. Right. I feel like you're fishing for something more specific than that. <laughs> well, he's showing off his erudition. Oh, right? okay. how much he knows. Cosmology. Right, okay. Right? Let me describe the different constellations as only a poet can do. He does this also in the um, the Daedalus and Icarus uh, episode where they're flying and he flies past this island and that island. And right. if you look off to your left, it's like a pilot. <laughs> exactly. Uh, there's Samos down there. Right. right. Yeah. He was blown more than once beyond the western horizon and into the east, and now as the day faded, weary of the night, he put down in the farthest reaches of the west, in Atlas's kingdom, hoping to catch a few hours' sleep before the morning star summoned Aurora, and Aurora in turn the chariot of day. Now Perseus can do this because um, he's borrowed, uh, is it the the hat or the sandal from Hermes? He has both. He has a number of gifts from the gods. Mm -hmm. So he's got the, the curved scimitar, Right, which is the ideal device for severing Gorgon heads. Yes. He's got the shiny shield from Athena, right? You can see the reflection of the Gorgon, which will not harm you. Exactly. Mm -hmm. He has the talaria, the winged sandals loaned to him by Hermes, like that uh, famous episode in the first Iron Man movie, The Origin Story. Yes. Where, um, 
who is it? Lex Luthor, Peter Parker. What's the name of that guy? Which guy are you talking about? Iron Man? Iron Man. <laughs> oh, oh, come Tony on. Stark. Tony Stark. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Robert Downey Jr. Yep. He's in the the basement of his garage and he's, or the garage of his basement. I don't know. <laughs> and he's trying out these thrusters, which will allow his feet to. He's kind of like hovering there in midair. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what Perseus is trying to learn how to do. Gotcha. But he's going all over the universe in the process of learning this unique skill. Interesting, interesting. Okay, so so what next? Well, Atlas is hunkered down here in the far west, and we're going to get another major etiology. Okay. What is an etiology, Etiology Dr. Winkle? A story that kind of explains... Dropping big words here. Yeah, it's origin stories. Okay. um, Very often, why something in nature is the way it is. Here's the story behind it. A just-so story. A just-so story, How right. the leopard got his spots. Exactly. All right, so it's an etiology. Mm-hmm. How the Atlas Mountains got there. Right. The, so, yeah, please. Go, no, please go ahead. The modern-day Atlas Mountains, if I'm not mistaken, Nifa Lor. Throw yeah. a little Latin in there. Nice. Okay. Are located in uh, Tunisia. Yes. Uh, Algeria. Yes. And a little bit of Morocco. <laughs> <laughs> What's he, what does he have to do with this? <laughs> Morocco, please. Sorry, sorry. Please. Now, you're, you're kind of like Abed here, kind of showing off a little geographical knowledge, right? I'm not supposed to know the names of the countries in uh, supra-Saharan Africa. Well, you, you said like, well, if I'm not mistaken. Well, I knew I wasn't mistaken. Okay, all right. But we talked about this a little bit off air, remember? What did we say? I said that you could talk about your time in Tatooine. Yes. And I speculated that the Atlas Mountains were in Mauritania. Oh, I see. Yes. And then you came down hard on me when you said, no, it's not Mauritania. Right, right. It's Morocco. <laughs> Sorry, I was... Who fr- is he anyway? He's, he's, he's a guy that pops up on like, yeah, best of the 80s videos. He's kind of a DJ kind of a guy? I don't know. He's a DJ. He's just, a, he's just like a, he's a TV personality. They call him a personality. Right. So, All right. Yeah. So well, you yeah, went to Tatooine. I did. It was amazing. Um, uh, do we have time for a little? Uh, of course. All right. So one of the, um, one of the highlights of, of your life, of my life, sort of, of my travel life. Okay. Um, is one morning they told us that if you want to, if you want to get up before. Wait a minute, yeah. wait a minute. Who's they? You haven't okay. said any location. You just you just woke up right. and they told you right. if you want to see Tatooine. Exactly. Some <laughs> kind of Eastern European prison. Right? <laughs> no, I, I was part of a I was part of an academic group there in Tunisia. Now in, we've got some context that we're studying uh, Roman ruins. Okay. Which are all over the place in Tunisia. All right. And some incredible sites there. Well, we were in the southern part of Tunisia, kind of the edge of the Sahara Desert. And our guides told us that as an optional outing in the morning, if you want to get get up at four in the morning and we're getting some... I'm out. (laughs) You know, for uh, probably 75% of a group, they were out. Okay. That's all they needed to hear. Right. But if you wanted to, you get up early, we're going to get some dune buggies. And we're going to drive, you know, through the dunes of the Sahara, mm-hmm. and um, see, he's pantomiming, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, exactly, waving my arms, and to see the sunrise come up over over yeah. the, the dunes, aurora. Right, and so they said we had to go super early because it gets really hot really fast. So we had to get in, get out, and so I said, you know, I don't want to miss this. And right. So I got up at four with a handful of those, and we got in these things. We drove all, all up and down, saw the sunrise. It was incredible. It was beautiful, and they said we have an extra surprise. And this is why I thought, you know, they're going to abandon us in the desert. Nobody will hear from us again. <laughs> but they took us over. Here's, here's half a camel and a full skin of water. Exactly right. Find your way out. <laughs> right, right. They took us over this ridge mm-hmm. and down into this valley. And there oh. we found ourselves amongst the the decrepit ruins right. of the, the set of Star Wars. So the John Williams music cued? Yes. And Mos Eisley opened up before you. Yes. Now, unfortunately, this was not the set from the 1977 Star Wars. It mm. was the one from... Probably the worst one of all, the Phantom we're Menace. Not, we're not going to mention that one. Right, right. <laughs> but there they all were. This uh, paper mache and chicken wire right. sets that they just built and abandoned. And since this happened long ago and, and far, far away, this is the very set over which Perseus flew. Yes. To get back to classical themes. Yes. On his way west to the Atlas Mountains. Exactly. Which presently cover three different countries. Right. And you were in one of those. Tun- I was Tunisia. in one. Tunisia, yes. All right. So Atlas lives there, and it's time to read some Latin. Ah, please do. You're going to take it away, right? I'm going to take it away right here. So this is line 621, book four of the Metamorphoses. Indeperinmen sum ventis discordibus actus. Nunc huc nunc illuc exemplo nubis aquosae. Ferret et exaltose ductas aethera longae. Despectater rasto tumqua super volat orbem. Very nice. I'm not done yet. Oh, okay. Keep going. Ter geledas arctos ter cancri brachio weedit, 
saipa sub acasus saipest ablatus in ordus, iam qua cadenta die virtus secreter nocti, constitit heis perior regnisar Atlantis in orbe. We're getting to the good part here. Exiguam capitit requiem dum lucifer ignes, ewo cet ardordrae curdrus ardordra de ur nos. He commenum cunctos ingenti corpora praestans, and now the big line, ya petioni des at las fuit ultima tellus. Very nicely done. Thanks. Now, why is that the big line? Because we have here Atlas. It was Atlas. And we have his patronymic which is not easy to get into a line of hexameter. It is six syllables, yapetionides. Yeah, yeah, it's a short line because so much is crammed into that patch. Yes, there yeah. are only uh, five words in the entire line. Yapetionides yeah. atlas fuit ultima tellus. So that one word uh, covers two and a half feet. Yeah, that's nice. And it's like he, he has all these wonderful lines. I mean... Um, where he's, again, this is that tour of the cosmos right. that's giving us that. Yes. But, Con- concrete brachia, the arms of cancer. But uh, And then he drops this. You're right. He drops it at, at the end. It was Atlas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You could say, I do not think it would be a stretch. He drops it like a rock. <laughs> really, right there. It's heavy. <laughs> it's heavy, yeah. I hope the, the listener, even without a knowledge of Latin, which may be a lot or maybe all, I don't know, not all, but much of our audience, I, I take it, doesn't know Latin real well. Mm-hmm. You can hear the rapidity, right? How fast and free and loose uh, are his verses. Just so skillful. And then this really heavy one. I love that second line you read, the, the nuke hook, nuke iluk. Yes, the internal do, do, rhyme. Do, 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 do. Yeah, exactly. It's Highly great. staccato. Very staccato, yeah. But which is fitting for um, a character that's moving all over the place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In musical terms, they call this phrasing, don't they? Yeah. For, yeah. The, 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 the scansion in the poetry is, is uh, akin to yeah, musical phrasing. So now that we've heard the Latin, and uh, we actually heard the translation before it, right? Right. So now we're up to the spot where Atlas appears on the stage. Yes. Shall I read a little bit of that? Yes. Can you go on from that spot? In Lombardo's translation, yes. So here Atlas, son of Iapetus, who for sheer bulk exceeded all men, ruled the edge of the world and the sea that welcomes the sun's panting horses and his weary chariot. He had a thousand flocks and as many herds of cattle wandering grassy plains that stretched on without borders. And there was a tree whose golden leaves concealed golden branches and apples of gold. That's a lot of gold, isn't it? That is a lot of gold. Yeah. So, wait, is, is he saying it's, um, is it the sun who has the flocks here, or is Atlas has the flocks? It's Atlas who has the flocks. So, but, he, but he's he's holding up the world. He's not yet. This is before he gets that punishment? Correct. Okay, so this is, this is where he's hanging out. He's hanging out. He's a titan, right? Right. So he and his brother Minoitius, in a previous generation, were uh, part of the group that fought against Zeus in right. the Titanom- the Titanomachy, right. okay. the Battle of the Gods and the Titans. Okay. They can go back to one of those Hesiod episodes if they want to learn about that. Oh, that's very true. Pretty yeah. early on. Way back when. Right. Yep. So Atlas is here tending his flocks. He has a thousand flocks and herds of cattle, grassy plains, and so forth. And there's a garden there. Now, this is the Garden of the Hesperides, you know? The furthest west point where these golden apples are kept. Right. Probably most famously known, this is one of um, Heracles' labors. Has That's to, right. He has to get these apples. And there's a snake there that guards it. And I think the snake's name is Ladon. And um, at one point, Hercules has Atlas uh, go get the apples for him. Right. Remember? And Hercules holds the world up in his stead. Right. It gives him a, gives him a breather. Correct. Go gets, gets the apples. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Interesting. We have a, a, a tree with... With apples guarded by a snake, it sounds kind of familiar. It does sound familiar. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, you want to pick it up there? You want to sure. read some more? So here's Lombardo. My lord, Perseus said to him, the him being Atlas, the son of Iapetus, if high birth carries any weight with you, mine is from Jupiter. Or if you admire great deeds, you'll admire mine. I ask for hospitality and a place to rest. So what do we have here? The basic Xenia story, don't we? We do. He's a weary, weary traveler. Um, although he sells himself pretty well. He does. Like, 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 like a, two points, right? I said, yeah, you should know who my dad is. Right. And man, look what I've done. So it's a business card mm-hmm. and a resume. Yep, exactly. So he's not hes not the weary beggar. No. Um, he's uh, hes highborn, but he still asks for and expects uh, Zania. Mm-hmm. And where do things go from there? Well, let me pick it up. But Atlas remembered an ancient prophecy given to him by Themis on Mount Parnassus. Atlas, a day will come when your tree will be stripped of all its gold and a son of Jupiter will take the credit. 
Fearing this, Atlas had enclosed his orchard with massive walls and set a huge dragon to guard it, and he kept away all strangers from its, his borders. Now he said to Perseus, get out of here, or your supposed glory and that Jupiter of yours will be long gone. Mm. Why the animosity towards Jupiter? I don't know. Why is he so upset with Jupiter well, about because it? Because this is, you know, the Titanomachy. Oh, that's right. I they were on opposite sides. The Titans and the gods, <laughs> they don't mix. Right. It isn't, isn't it interesting that professional sports teams, mm-hmm. we have the New York Giants, we have the Tennessee Titans, yes, but we don't have any team called the Gods. The Gods or or even the Olympians. No, uh, are there no Olympians? I don't, well, maybe in some kind of B League. But, uh, <laughs> I suppose. Yeah. The uh, Washington football team is looking for a mascot. Right, right now they are the Washington football team. Yes, the um, WFTs. <laughs> they used to be the Redskins, remember? That's right. But they ditched that name, mm-hmm. and uh, they're looking for another name. So maybe this is a candidate? Maybe. The Washington Gods? Maybe. Speaking of Titans, you don't know that the movie Clash of the Titans. Which one? Uh, well, all of them. Okay. Um, no Titans. Really? Let alone clashing. Well, there were Titans in it. Name a Titan that was in Clash of the Titans. Uh, you got me. You can't do it because there were none. <laughs> I think Perseus was in most of them. He's not a Titan. I know, but <laughs> just remembering that that he was that he was in the movie. He was in the movie, right? Uh, we're we're off track though. Okay, so he's upset. He so he heard this prophecy, and uh, I mean this is a this is a classic Ovidian move, right? Uh, and you find this all over myth too. Is it you know you have prophecy. Oracle's given. Um, kind of, An anonymous kind of prophecy. You don't know where it came from. Well, yeah, somebody said something. Somebody said something and like, you didn't seek it out. It's just going to drop down you. Right. And it's usually bad. And so you do everything that you can to avoid the outcome. But of course, the, the rule of oracles is an oracle must come true. Mm-hmm. So he's built this these huge walls. He said, maybe if I build these giant walls, nobody will come and, and strip my, my golden trees. Right. And here's a, here's a snake to, mm-hmm. to um, also uh, keep people away. Mm-hmm. But he hasn't reckoned with the quality of this particular customer. That's right. Perseus has a secret weapon. He does. Uh, you want to read on? Yes, I would. His heavy hands, Atlas's heavy hands, backed up the threat with force. Perseus interspersed gentle words into his heroic resistance. But finding himself outmanned, who could outman Atlas himself? He said to him, Well now, since you are able to show me so little kindness, here's a little kindness for you. Oh, that's kind of a... He's uh, monologuing he like a monologuing. superhero. It is like, he kind of reminds me almost like, like Spider-Man here. Right. You know, kind of scrawny, but kind of quick, with, a, quick yep. with his wit. The clever retort. So what is it that he's going to pull out of his magic satchel? What could it be? <laughs> and turning away, he held out on his left the horrible head of the Gorgon Medusa. As big as he was, Atlas immediately turned into a mountain of just the same size. His hair and beard were changed into trees and into ridges, his, his shoulders and his hands. What had been his head was now a summit, and his bones became stones. Then every part grew to an enormous size, for you gods wished it so. And the entire sky, with all its many stars, now rested upon him. Hmm. So Perseus takes out the head of Medusa. I mean, he uses this, of course, later when over he gets home. Over. Yeah, it almost gets a little old. Right. Right, exactly. Oh, here, here. what's he going to whip <laughs> out of the bag? Oh, here it comes again. Right. But I kind of like this, yeah. Here, I got a little kindness for you. Here's right. some kindness. Yeah. <laughs> Very sarcastic. Yeah. So that's the etiology. That's the story. Yeah. That's how the sky is held up. Now, is Atlas there? I, I take it to be that you know, from a Roman or a Greek point of view, that's the edge of the world. I, I think mean, so. The vast expanse of, of you know, river ocean beyond that. Mm-hmm. And, and so we place Atlas at the very farthest geographical point that they know about. Right. I um, think we maybe have talked about this before, but when I was a kid, uh, we used to talk about Timbuktu. Which, yeah. Which is a city in Africa. Right. And from my, you know parochial American upbringing in the 1970s and 1980s, Timbuktu was the, you know, the proverbial edge of the world. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it functions um, as a kind of, um, like, the ultimate nowheresville, mm-hmm. right? You're yeah. not going to bring up liminality here, are you? No, not, not at all. Okay. No, but since you brought it up, no, <laughs> no, forget it, forget it. So my friend down in Australia, uh, not Ron, but the other one, says yeah. they have an expression, back of Burke. Back of Burke, what does that mean? Now, Burke is a spot in Australia that is remote, distant, and small, Kind of a nowheresville. Yeah. And if you go back of Burke, you're really out. You're nowhere. really way out, out of there. Correct. Right. So for the Romans and the Greeks, the Atlas Mountains in Morocco was the back of Burke. Back of Burke. Gotcha. I like that. Mm-hmm. It's an Australian kind of themed day, isn't it? It is. Yeah. This has been some hard yaka <laughs> through these lines. Speaking of hard yaka, it's time for a break. Let's do it. 
This episode of Ad Nauseam brought to you by Hackett Publishing. The good people at Hackett have for the last 40 plus years been bringing affordable, accessible translations of classical works as well as works from all other corners of academia to the public. I love Hackett. I've used their translations in my classroom. I have them in my shelves in my house. Uh, Can't say enough about them. Uh, Dave, tell us what you like about Hackett Publishing. Well, I like their commitment to the classics, for starters. Mm -hmm. They have a very broad and deep bench, you might say, of works, classical works that we can turn to, reliable, accurate, and very interesting translations. For preparing tonight's episode, we're looking at the translations of Ovid's Metamorphoses, two of them, one by uh, our hero, Stanley Lombardo, yes, with a nice introduction by uh, W.R. Johnson, very well done. The cover has a, a modern artwork called They Snaked Together, which is Cadmus and Harmonia. It's by someone named Michelin Klagsbrunn captures so well the contents of the book. Now, the other one, so this is a poet, a poetry, a verse translation. The other one by Ambrose is a prose translation. Right. And it has the famous picture of uh, Zeus embracing one of his many loves in the shape of a cloud. That's right. So what does this tell us about Hackett? Well, they have not just one, but two excellent paperback, affordable, highly researched, careful translations on a major author. Yep. Um, I've used them for years. Um, I always go back to them in my own research and in suggesting works that my students ask me about. So I can't say enough about Hackett Publishing. Right. Let's face it. The classics are a little bit under some pressure now in contemporary culture. People are questioning the relevance. You know, is it appropriate to read these stories and such? Hackett is still putting out high quality stuff and supporting the classics like this podcast. Yep. Keeping the flame alive, as, as we say, say a lot of this. So, listeners, uh, to take advantage of, of our special offer here, uh, go to hackettpublishing.com, search their catalog, find something you like, put it in your grocery basket, but don't forget to type in the, the code AN2021 and you will get 20% off plus free shipping. Amazing. Amazing. Check it out. This episode is also brought to you by Racial Coffee. Racial Coffee, the brainchild of our good friend and great supporter of the classics, Mr. Mark Helweg, based out in Portland, Oregon. Mark set out to design the perfect home coffee maker. And I think he's done it. I think for sure. Yes, for the last five months or so, I've had a cup uh, nearly every morning from my Ratio 6 machine. And um, I've never had better coffee uh, in in my household. I used to have uh, one of those machines made by, um, I don't know, uh, what was it called? Dakin Blecker, maybe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dakin Blecker or uh, Masur Coffee, something like something that. Something like that, yeah. Plasticky sort of thing. And, uh, you know, you get what you pay for when it comes to a quality beverage. The Scorch Pad. Scorch Pad. Always the Scorch Pad. Emanating brackish tang all over the place. Yeah, nasty. And yeah. That, those days are long gone now. Way gone, yep. So in the Ratio 6, you have the Ratio 8. I do. Um, there's no hot pad. There's uh, just a, uh, a solid steel carafe that keeps the coffee warm for ages. Uh, the After the bloom stage, you got the brew stage, then you got the ready stage. All illuminated by this wonderful, charming LED light. Yep. Um, the machines themselves are wonder, are beautiful to look at. Extruded aluminum aircraft quality. Yes. With uh, wood, real wood accents. Mine has got walnut and it's an oyster color, matches the decor of the kitchen. The other appliances, you know, cower in shame. They when, do. When the ratio... They scuttle. They do, when the yeah. ratio pokes up its head. I think that this coffee maker of mine, the ratio eight, mm-hmm. could probably hold up the sky. Absolutely. <laughs> nice tie-in. I like that. So what can our listeners do to, to benefit from listening to uh, these ads? They need to go to ratiocoffee.com. Okay. R-A-T-I-O coffee.com. They need to look at both the ratio six. It's uh, a little more attainable than the ratio eight, which is a a more impressive machine, and uh, they need to select the one they want with the accessory package they want, put it in their grocery cart or basket, and then enter the coupon code. A-N-C-O. Which stands for Ad Nauseam Coffee, and they will get 15% off this marvelous machine. It's a great deal. You won't regret it. And lastly, this episode brought to you by the Moss Method. Dave, tell us about what the Moss Method is. The Moss Method for Greek is a program that I have developed which will enable anyone virtually to learn the Greek language. I've taken a 19th century text written by Charles Melville Moss, divided it up into four modules of approximately 40 lessons each. Now you may be thinking, I've always wanted to learn Greek, but I can't do it. It's too difficult. It's too expensive. I don't have anybody to help me. I think this is going to answer all of those questions and ease all of those concerns. 
Excellent. So if students are interested, what, how would they go about doing this, accessing this? Right. Well, they need to go to mossmethod.com. We're in the middle of redesigning our website. We have fabulous new redesign. They need to watch some of the sample videos. I try to give away a lot of material, a lot of Greek information there that you can have for free. But then if you want to go deeper, you want to have my help. You want to go from you know, being a person like I was 25, 30 years ago with no knowledge of Greek at all Mm -hmm. to a person like I am now. That is someone who can read and enjoy, you know, the great prose and poetry of the ancient world, then you need to get into this program. And in this program, they'll have direct access to you, as I understand it. Correct. Yes, it's self-paced, expert, and accessible. That's Those are the buzzwords, right? So I'm not going to just give you some book and say, hey, learn this on your own. I walk you through every word, every phrase, through instructional videos, and you have access to me via email, telephone, whatever you want. Cell, you know, you can text me, ask any question. I get questions from people all over the world, actually. And of course, I don't have all the answers, but I work hard to try to answer their questions. I, I hold your hand. I take you through the process of learning Greek. You can succeed at this. And they can go from neophyte to, to erudite. erudite. That's right. That's the slogan, Jeff. Thank you for remembering. Excellent. They need to go to mossmethod.com and check it out. As we get back into it, Jeff, it's time to move on to book six and the story of Niobe and her children. Yes. So Niobe is one of those stories that, again, falls into a particular type. And there's a lot of these stories where a human being, mortal, is very good at something or is very proud of something, um, brags about that that something, and runs afoul of a deity who is um, very often the god of that something. Right. And so they have a certain amount of of advantage in terms of being skillful. (laughs) Yeah, As when, the premier example is Arachne. Arachne, right, which in the, uh, the Metamorphosis is the, is the story that, that immediately precedes this one. And so um, it's, uh, Ovid is stacking up these kinds That's of That's the tie. That's the connection. Right. So just like Arachne challenged Athena, here we have another person who was bold enough, who had enough hubris to go up against a divinity. Right. And it, it's not one that, um, it also reminds me of the Marsyas story with Apollo, where it, it comes down to a contest. You know, Arachne and, and Minerva have a weaving contest. Marsyas and Apollo have a have a, um, a throwdown, a musical uh, right. contest. Uh, with Niobe, it's, it's a boast. Um, it's a, just an act of hubris that gets her into trouble, and she pays for it dearly. Right, and a boast of something that happened in the past, right? It's, it's not something that can be tested in the present. Right, right. So that's the um, kind of the, the new spin on an, on an old story. Okay. But um, let me start by reading some Latin. You're going to read some Latin? Yep. Great. I'll read a few lines from the beginning of this, of this vignette. And this is, uh, can I ask which lines in the actual text of Ovid, in case, you know, the Latini in our audience want to go check for themselves? Sure. This is from Book 6, lines 146 to 151. Lydia tote premit frigiaeque per opede facti, rumor it et magnum semonibus occupet orbem, ante suos neobain dalmos cagnoverd ilam, tum cum mai oniam virgo sipilumque colebat, Nectamet admoni test poina popularis arachnis, cedere caelitibus verbusque minoribus uti. Very nicely done, Dr. Winkle. Thank you. Beautiful poetry, isn't it? it so fluid. Yes, very nice. Yes, it's great. It just rolls off the tongue. It's incredible. Um, you want to uh, share the translation? This, now, this is the Ambrose translation. Yes, this yes. is the Ambrose from the, uh, it was the Focus Classical Library. So I don't know if the audience is interested, but another great publisher of uh, classics was the Focus Company. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Hackett acquired them, I don't know, about a decade ago, and have kept alive these wonderful volumes. So here it goes. All Lydia is a buzz, and through all the Phrygian towns, report of the deed proceeds, filling the wide world with talk. Before her marriage, Niobe had met that girl, when, as a young girl, she lived in Myonia and Sipolis. But by the punishment of Arachne, her compatriot, she heeded not the warning to yield to heavenly beings and to employ modest speech." So we already know where this one is going. Right. It's not going to end well, right? But I love this detail that Niobe uh, met Arachne, mm-hmm. knew that story. And and so in some ways, Ovid is saying that um, no excuse. Right. She right. had every reason to understand this was not going to be a good outcome for her if she fronted the gods. Right. So as we, we learn in the story, so she knows what happened to Arachne, doesn't learn her lesson. Uh, we also learn that Niobe is originally from Lydia, uh, Phrygia era, what we, what we would call the the west coast of Turkey today. And I may, maybe wonder if that was significant. You know, often the, the Greeks 
uh, I guess the Romans too would associate the East as being kind of wild and uncontrolled. Mm-hmm. And, and, well, Dionysus was from Phrygia, right? Right, exactly. But you know, the, in, uh, yeah, Eastern dress, Eastern ways was was thought to be decadent. Yeah, luxuriant. Right. So I wonder if if uh, if that's part of the of the hook here. We can kind of blame Niobe for. Mm-hmm. Uh, well. If I may, it's the Phrygia is kind of like the ad nauseum green room, right? The ad nauseum green room? Yeah, you haven't been in the green room? I haven't. I've never been let in. What's oh, it, what, what goes I on? I have the, told you about What it. goes on in there? Well, I can fill you in next week if that's all right, Winkle. That's fine. On the green room? That's fine, right? It's going to bug me, but I, okay. I, can, I can let it go for now. Maybe I can come up with a VIP pass. Oh, sounds good. All right. So she's from Lydia. Uh, she's an Easterner. But we also learned that um, through marriage, she's now moved to Thebes. I think that also kind of carries a particular weight to it. That reminds me of kind of all the horrible things that happened with the you know, a lot of horrible things with Oedipus's family, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and she was. We also she's also her background. She's related to to Tantalus, and so there's a lot of things that kind of presage uh, nightmares to come for this woman. Related to Tantalus, that's an interesting detail. That detail kind of you know, sparks my curiosity. Does it? Would you say almost? Don't even do that. (laughs) Don't even do that, Winkle. That's so bad. (laughs) Sorry. Can we we just let that go? Go on. All right. Okay, so in the the story, uh, we learned the prophetess Manto, who is a daughter of Tiresias, another great prophetess. Uh, She calls the people together uh, for a celebration of the goddess Latona, uh, Leto in in, in Greek, uh, the mother of Apollo and Diana, the, the famous twins. And so the throng is gathered. Everybody is kind of following the directions of the prophetess, but Niobe's not having any of it. And she lashes out with um, kind of the, the major part of her hubris, hmm. I would say here. So let me uh, go to the Ambrose translation. Behold, Niobe arrives, attended by a great throng of followers, outstanding in her Phrygian robes woven with gold. As much as anger allows her to be, she is lovely and moves her decorous head in the tresses that over either shoulder spilled. She stopped, and as she moved, her proud gaze all about exclaims, What madness is this? To prefer to those seen divinities, uh, ones you've only heard about. Why do altars Latona, altars Latona revere when my divinity lacks incense yet? Of Tantalus I was born, the only one who had permission to touch the tables of the gods. The sister of the Pleiades is my mother, and Atlas, greatest in size, my grandfather who bears upon his neck the pole of the sky. My other grandfather is Jupiter, in whom, as my father-in-law, I glory as well. Can we interrupt for just a moment? Please. A lot of intertextuality here, right? Yeah. Uh, talk about it. Well, he's reminding us. she is reminding us of Book 4 and what just happened to Atlas. And here's her resume of all the famous people she knows, much as Perseus, when he arrived at Atlas, said, If divinity is your thing, I'm divine. If great accomplishments, I have those too. Yes. Could could anything be more hubristic than this? She said. I doubt it. She said, "Why are you worshiping this goddess when I'm, I'm right here?" Exactly. Right. The Phrygian peoples fear me, and under my sway is Cadmus's kingdom, and the walls committed to the lyre of my spouse, as well as their people, are ruled by my husband and me. No matter to what part of the house I turn my eyes, our riches seen beyond measure. To this is added the fact that I have a face worthy of a goddess, and to this seven daughters add, and just as many sons, and soon both sons and daughters-in-law. Now ask yourselves whether our pride is justified and dare to prefer to me the titan girl born of some coeus, I don't know, Latona, that one to whom all the world one time refused the slightest space for her to give birth. Hmm. So Niobe is the wife of Amphion, and Amphion and Zethus are the sons of Zeus. So she's married to a guy who's descended from Zeus, the grand, uh, the son of Zeus, right? Right. And she has divinity on her side too. So she says, look, this is absurd. You're going to worship Apollo and Artemis or Diana. I'm right here. I'm divine. And I need some respect. Right. The line that I ended there with says, uh, Latona, that one to, to whom all the world one time refused the slightest space for her to, to give birth. So it's another kind of insult. Mm-hmm. So it's worth kind of recounting that story quickly. Right. Right, so... Um, Zeus and Leto, right? Leto, Latona, they uh, have an affair. Mm-hmm. She becomes pregnant, and uh, Hera, or Juno... Yep, it uh, intervenes with a kind of persecution. Right, and tells her, and, and says, um, kind of pronounces a curse that she will not be allowed to give birth on any um, uh, terra firma. Right. So any any place in the mainland or any fixed island. Hunts and chases and persecutes her all over the globe, basically. Right. And in some versions I've read she's in... 
uh, perpetual labor. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not that she nobody will take her in. She's in excruciating pain this whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, but comes that, to the region of the Phrygians. Um, and yes. transforms them into frogs. Oh, that's right. Leto yeah. does. Right. Another story recounted by Ovid. Right. Because they don't give her a welcome reception. Exactly. Um, until the island of Delos is sent up by Neptune. And it's, it's this, the island is, is a floating island. And so it, uh, it finds a loophole in the curse of, of Juno. So it's not the mainland. It's not a fixed island. It's a floating island. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes the one place that can take her in. She gives birth to the twins there, and then that place becomes a holy sanctuary for her and for her children. Mm-hmm. May I digress for a moment? Please do. Something I learned recently is that the uh, inhabitants of the island of Delos were famous for their ability to swim. Is that right? Yes. Now, the Greeks generally didn't swim. No. Because you don't go out onto the sea unless you have to. It's too dangerous. Right. The sea is for warfare and commerce, and that's it. It's not for recreation. Yeah, and even when they would go out on ships, they would rarely leave the sight of land. Yes, they were very afraid of the sea. No floaties, no uh, pool noodles, things like that. (laughs) But the inhabitants of Delos were an exception. And so in Latin, to say that someone is really good at something, they're a dalius natator, a a delian swimmer. Is that right? Yes. I love that. Yeah, I do too. So if you're really good at something, you're a dalius natator. Oh, man, I got to work that into my everyday speech. I've started using it. Yeah? Yep. How's it gone over? Not great. Not great. (laughs) It takes time to work these things in. Of course. Right. So in that, we learn that uh, um, she's uh, a daughter of Tantalus, right? Which she brags about here. But of course, Tantalus too. Uh, um, Bad ending to that story. Right. So he, yes, he was admitted to the table of the gods, but he took his own son Pelops and carved him up and fed him to the gods. Right. To test their omniscience. Right. Right. And it doesn't end well for him. No, he ends up in the, one of the lower regions of Tartarus being punished. So I think all of these things, kind of where she's from, where she ends up, who she's related to, is is all a clear obvious foreshadowing that she's just going to join another these the the ranks of the infamous here. yes disaster awaits right shall i read on from there please do okay she continues your goddess was received by neither sky nor water nor land an exile from the world until delos pitied the wanderer and said you wander as a guest upon the land i upon the sea and granted her unstable space she became the mother of two only a seventh of what my womb has produced a little hubristic uh, division there arithmetic mm-hmm. would any deny that i am happy and who would also deny that happy i shall remain plenty has made me secure too great am i for fortune to do me harm and should she take away much much will i retain my wealth has dispelled all worry imagine that i could be deprived of just a part of this tribe of children i have even then I would not be reduced to the level of only two, Latona's crowd, of which how far is she from being bereft? Abandon the rights at once, you've done enough, and remove the laurel from your hair. They take it off and leave the rights undone, but as they can, venerate with silent murmurs the goddess's might. So she's so intimidating that the people cower. Yes, they do. Right? They don't really believe, but like you say, they cower. They pretend to say, okay, Niobe, your claims are superior. Will give in. I love this detail though, as they're walking away, they're kind of muttering prayers. Yes. Right? <laughs> so the boast is I've got 14 children. You've it, only got two. You've got two. I'm seven times the, right. the, the mother you are. Yes. What kind of a mother are you? Right. So, of course, Latona is deeply uh, angered by this and she calls a council of herself and her children on Delos and um, basically says, well, What are we going to do about this? And she kind of goes into this long complaint. And Apollo interrupts his own mother and says, "Okay, I've heard enough. Let's go get this. Let's go get this woman. Let's go. Let's let's yes. deliver punishment now." Mm. Right. Apollo's a touchy one, isn't he? He is. He is. Well, he's kind of one of those weird, those odd personalities. And there's so much about him that's very close to humanity. Mm-hmm. He's associated with poetry and music and and reason. He's the god of reason. Right. All Dispassionate consideration. These things that separate human beings from the animals. Right. But at the same time, he can be. You know, coldly cruel and um, calculating, and calculating, and can and just and snap uh, at the drop of a hat. Mm-hmm. That, that's the Apollo. That's the Phoebus we see here. Right. All right. I'll pick up the story there. So the 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 twins come down to to Thebes. Ambrose translation: A broad and level field lay open before the walls that horses had constantly beaten down, where many wheels and rigid hooves had softened the clods beneath. Of Amphion's seven sons, some are mounting there. Uh, strong steeds and pressing those backs made red with Tyrian dye and holding the reins heavy with gold. Of these Isminus, who was the first to burden his mother's womb while bending the course of his steed into a fixed curve and checking its foaming mouth, exclaims, Ah, me! 
and there implanted in the middle of his chest he bears a dart, and with the reins falling from his dying grasp, he sinks down gradually from the horse's right shoulder to his side. Oh. So, first one down. Yes. Arrow, just as he's plowing. Right. Out of nowhere, right? Unseen. They don't, they don't see the, the archer. Having heard the sound of the quiver through the empty air, Sipolis next was giving his horse full rein, and when the captain, suspecting a storm from the appearance of clouds, extends the sails that hang on every side lest the slightest breeze escape. Um, epic simile. Epic simile. Right. The unavoidable arrow finds him uh, even giving full rein. The quivering shaft is fixed at the top of his neck. The naked iron protrudes from his throat. Reminds me of the slaughter of the suitors. Absolutely. Uh, at the end of the of the Odyssey, right? Well, there are a number of slaughter scenes in Ovid, and each time they get more graphic and more extended and a little comic, honestly. <laughs> it goes so over the top, it's almost yes, ridiculous. in the Battle of the Lapiths and the Centaurs, which of course we'll cover at some point, yeah. the uh, centaurs are clocking each other over the head with any kind of stray item they can find in the Great Banquet Hall, like a large... A bowl of jello or another occasion, they pull the leg off a table and it loses some of its epic grandeur. Right. Because it's ridiculous. And you think Ovid is kind of having a laugh again? Absolutely. <laughs> I don't know if he's doing it here. We'll have to see how it plays out. Is he going to go from the tragic to the absurd? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, it reads to me very much like, a, like I said, the, the, the suitor scene or, or a, a battle scene from the Iliad and the like. Uh, well, let's see where he goes with this. Uh, bent forward as he was, he topples over the main and unchecked limbs and stains the soil with steamy blood. Yeah, that was Sipolis, right? That was Sipolis. So who's next? Oh, unfortunate uh, Phaedimus and Tantalus, of his grandfather's name, the heir, uh, having finished their usual tasks, had gone on to gleaming wrestling, that work of youths, already in tight embrace, had they pressed tr- struggling chest to struggling chest, when sped by taut stretched bow, the arrow pierced them both, joined just as they were so what with one shot yeah okay I, I it's getting a little ridiculous yes i think that's meant to be a little bit uh comic as it's tragic right, right. no sooner may i pick yeah, up yeah please do no sooner had they groaned than they laid upon the ground their limbs doubled over in pain and prostrate turned aloft their final gaze and breathed out their last Alphenor looks on this is another brother and beating his grief-torn breast runs forward and as he lifts the chill limbs in his embrace you know hugging his brothers as in an act of kindness collapses in his act of piety for the Delian god broke the inner bonds of his heart with his prophetic shaft of steel as soon as it was removed the point tore away a part of his lung and his soul and blood spewed forth into the air it's getting grisly it's like a Tarantino, a Tarantino movie here I guess yes but unshorn Damasichthon was dealt not just one wound. Precisely where the leg begins and ligaments of the knee form a spongy connection was he struck. That's very specific. Well, it's a little bit anatomical. It is. We continue. And as he tries with his hand to extract the lethal shaft, another arrow is driven up to its feathers into his throat. His blood pushed it on through and welling up springs forth with a leap, drilling a steam through the air. The last, Ilianaeus had raised his arms in prayer to no avail, and had said, O gods, one and all, not knowing that he need not pray to all, have mercy. The wielder of the bow was moved, but only after the arrow could no longer be recalled. He fell just the same to his death despite the minor wound, his heart not deeply pierced by the shaft. Mm. Carnage. It's a nice little, I like that little detail there that Apollo almost feels a little sorry at the end, but it's yeah. too late. He's already shot the guy. Right. Right. You think as the god of prophecy, he would have been able to foresee that. <laughs> but but no. Nope. No, no, Took him in, by surprise. He's in kill mode. Mm. Yep. All right. So seven sons down. Mm-hmm. That means she's got seven daughters. Right. Left. And then they start in on the daughters. So Niobe, oh, she's, she's devastated, um, but she's still defiant uh, to the last. But then her husband, Amphion, descendant of Zeus, takes on a more stereotypical feminine role that we see in tragedy and mm-hmm. takes his own life. He does. From he, grief. Right. He commits suicide. It's, uh, again, the, the scene kind of reminds me of, of Jocasta. Right. Hanging herself. It, it, and, in Oedipus Rex. Yes. And Eurydice in Antigone. It's usually the, the feminine character who goes off to commit suicide. But here, again, it's a, another Ovid curveball. Mm-hmm. Here, the husband kills himself and Niobe is left to deal with the fallout. That's right. So then she's mourning the death of her sons, and we pick up again here. She falls, she being Niobe, falls upon the cold members and frantically implants her final kisses upon all her sons, from whom she raises to heaven the arms she has bruised, and says, Cruel Latona, feed upon our grief, yes, feed. And added, Upon my sorrow glut your breast and glut your savage heart. 
Through seven deaths have I been carried to my tomb, exult and triumph as my victorious foe. But why victorious, wretched though I am, I still have more than you in your happiness. Even after so many deaths, I win. Can you believe this? I can't believe it. <laughs> this is some stubborn, stubborn arrogance. It is. Again, uh, to bring up the Odyssey, it reminds me of Odysseus again shaking his fist at the Cyclops, telling him his name and his father's name. Right? I can't leave it alone. She can't leave it alone. It's like, so I, well, I still have seven daughters left, so I'm still, I, I still have way more children than you do, Latona. Mm-hmm. Um, but what does she think is going to happen here? Well, there's this famous line in the Amores, and I'm paraphrasing. I'm not going to get it exactly right. But Ovid says something like, uh, Video et probo meliora. I see and approve the better things, uh, but I follow sequor. I follow the worse. Ah, uh. Right. Yeah. This is Niobe. Yeah. Right? She, she can't help herself. She can't. She knows this is stupid. Right. And it's going to lead to her death. But. Right. I guess maybe she maybe she knows that this was going to happen anyway, and so she's going to get one last insult in. Perhaps go down swinging. Correct. At least verbally. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, Apollo and Diana come down and do their uh, worst. They do their worst, and they they take out uh, all seven daughters. I mean, Niobe. Not she, all seven. She well, she begs for the life of the last one. Right. This right? is an important exception. Okay. Can well, you read us that part there? I can. When six had been sent to death and suffered wounds, the last one remained, whom her mother, with all her form, with all her robes concealed. Leave one, the smallest of all. Of all the many, I demand the smallest, she cried, and only one. And as she pleads, the one she pleads for falls. Naomi sits down bereft among her lifeless sons and daughters and spouse and stiffens in her woes. Her tresses are not moved by the breeze. A bloodless color lies upon her face. Within her sad cheeks, her eyes stare motionless. Upon her form, there is nothing alive. Her tongue itself within her hardened mouth is frozen, and her veins are no longer able to be moved. Her neck cannot be bent. Her arms cannot be moved. Her foot cannot advance. Her innards are also stone. And yet she weeps, and enveloped within a whirl of a strong wind, she's carried off to her homeland. There, fixed upon a mountain peak, she wastes away, and turned to marble, flows even now with tears. Oh. Aren't those powerful lines? They are. I mean, the, as, as in many ways, as wretched a character as Naomi is, I think what Ovid nails is kind of that that coldness, uh, uh, that of pain, sorrow. of sorrow and pain of, of, of losing one's children in particular. She's just completely, she's, she's, uh, she becomes, of course, literally petrified, but she's, mm. she has the, uh, the being of stone. I think that's very well said. Something else that I like about Ovid, I know two episodes ago when we first touched on the metamorphoses, I said words to the effect echoing Conte that if you want something profound, you read Virgil. If you want to have a good time, be amused, entertained, diverted, you read Ovid. I think this is an instance where Ovid reaches a kind of sublimity. Oh, absolutely. And I'd put it like this. He uh, is a person who can provoke within us pity for the people who don't deserve it. Yeah, exactly. And this is a perfect example mm-hmm. of that, right? And it's, again, it's, it's another one of those places where he's, he's kind of jerking the audience, you know, from left to right. What's going to happen? Right. So uh, he's such a surprising poet. Mm-hmm. Right? And we were just reading those almost ridiculous uh, death scenes. Again, you could be lured into thinking, okay, what kind of horrible uh, death is Niobe going to receive? Mm-hmm. And he kind of slows it down with this really uh, deeply human um, uh, portrait of grief. Yes, carried off to her homeland. So she's returned to Phrygia, where she becomes a famous marble outcropping and flowing like marble with tears. Yes, so this is um, often associated with um, the so-called Mount Sipolis in Lydia. Again, bears the name of, of one of her, her children, uh, the so-called Weeping Rock. And uh, it's, a, it's a mountain that's, it looks like it has the head of a woman at the top of it. And you can easily imagine even the sight of this mountain kind of giving rise to this, a story like this. Or vice versa. Or vice versa. Yeah, exactly. Or maybe it's really her. It could be. Yes, right. So these, Are you so so quick to disbelieve. I am. Yeah, I'm. I, I can't go that far. Okay. Right. All right. But I'll, a, a surprising, a surprising bit of, of charity on your part. You, to whom? You, you, you're usually the, the the deep cynic. What? Yeah. Charity toward whom? Wait. Uh, charitable towards that 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 kind of very romantic interpretation. No, I believe the stories. Oh, you do. I think most of them are true, honestly. Okay. okay. Haven't we covered this before? We have. All right. This, I'm having this extreme deja vu right now. Right? <laughs> That's okay. So what's the connection to Harry Houdini? Uh, th- I, this was new to me. I learned this in, in just doing a little bit of research on this. So um, Harry Houdini's grave 
Uh, I believe he's buried somewhere in New York. Um, here do the 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 stage name of Eric Weiss. Oh, really? Yes, there I, is a. I used to know that name, but it escaped me. Nicely done. Did you get that? I es- did. Escaped. I like it. I like it. Um, he has a weeping Niobe on his grave. And as I understand, this is part of a long tradition of statues and paintings of Niobe as kind of a stand-in for extreme grief. I didn't know that. Right. So I, usually she's portrayed apart from her her lost children, but the weeping Niobe becomes kind of a symbol of um, uh, kind of recognizing and accepting the, the pain of death. There's no way to escape it. No. Right, and so there, and it was part of Houdini's grave. Still is. Mm. Yeah. Have you been to that site? I have not. No. It sounds like the sort of thing that you would do. It would. Yes. I um I read a biography on Houdini a few years back. It was fascinating. Do you remember the title, or does it escape you? It, here we go. I gotta I gotta stop falling into that trap. <laughs> um, but a, a fascinating individual. I would love to see Houdini's grave. Ah. Uh. Yeah. And now that especially that I know that there's a Naomi there. So Nayo becomes the, becomes this this uh, kind of archetype for the you know the the bereft uh, parent. Mm. Um, uh, there are comparisons to, to Niobe in the Iliad when um, Priam is the, loses Hector. Mm-hmm. Um, he's described along the lines of, of mourning like Niobe. Um, Antigone uh, compares herself to Niobe when she's at the end of things. The Sophoclean play, right? Yes, right. When she's about to take her her mm-hmm. own life in the Theban saga, right? So she becomes kind of the stand-in for kind of ultimate ultimate suffering and and sorrow. So this is a part of a, a number of stories, right? It's it's a, a sample of a number of stories. That show the vengeance of Artemis. Right. Would you say? I mean, we've got stories like um, the defense of her virginity, where Actian, the story we saw before, Actian gets punished when Artemis is, uh, you know, espied inappropriately while she's bathing. Yep. Uh, there's Orion, there's Cypriotes, uh, who also stumbles across Diana while bathing or Artemis while bathing. What do you make of this? Artemis, she plays that role like her brother. You know, she can be, um, you know, very quick uh, f- uh, for vengeance. And so, you know, Apollo, in this instance, he's defending the the honor of his mother. Artemis is doing the same kind of uh, same kind of thing. But I think even more so than her brother, um, Artemis, you know, being a virginal goddess herself, she uh, she recognizes that's kind of the core of her sanctity and holiness. And so she is very quick to defend that and to strike down those that threaten it, even in the slightest fashion, mm-hmm. or even on the path of other, uh, on the behalf of other uh, feminine goddesses to defend their virginity as well. Mm-hmm. She'll she'll whip out the arrows and defend that. So again, a very dangerous, vengeful deity. Mm-hmm. This is another one of um, uh, examples of that. Right, right. So one of my favorite rooms in the Uffizi Museum in Florence, yeah, is the uh, Niobid room. Right. So this is oh, yeah. on, on the second floor. I'm sure you can picture it in your mind. It was closed the last time I was there, sadly. Oh, man. Uh, but I wanted to read a little bit about uh, this portion of the, the neoclassical room in the Uffizi. So I'm reading from virtualuffizi.com. Right. So the Uffizi houses a group of 12 ancient sculptures, Roman copies from an original Greek. So these were originally sculptured, uh, sculpted excuse me, in bronze. Now the Romans copied them in marble of which we know neither the date nor the location. Now, they're Hellenistic, which means sometime after Alexander, but before the Roman era. The sculptures that give name to the great Niobe's room at the second floor of the gallery were found in Rome near the Porta San Giovanni in 1583. The Cardinal Ferdinando de' Medici, the future Grand Duke of Tuscany, bought her immediately, that is, the uh, Niobid sculpture set Mm -hmm. uh, for its Roman villa, uh, around 1770, the sculptures were brought to Florence. In 1780, at the peak of neoclassical period, uh, the room where they are still exposed was set up by the architect Gaspare Maria Paletti. The statues are lined up along the walls, spaced apart to allow visitors to admire them in isolation, which sacrifices part of the relationship between the various works. Uh, but I find it, now I'm not quoting here, I'm just you know, commenting, I find it a really compelling room. It's beautiful. It has this marble floor. It's got gorgeous uh, late Renaissance or early modern period, if I'm not mistaken, furniture and different kinds of um, accoutrements. Yeah. And then scattered around the room, spaced around the room, are as many of these Niobid sculptures as survive. Right, right. It's right. very, very moving. It's very beautifully done. The 12 sculptures represent characters fleeing or shot dead in a dramatic and theatrical way. The focus of the group is Niobe, who tries to protect her youngest daughter and directs her terrified and pleading gaze skyward. So she's looking up and the child is uh, huddling at her knees, crouching at her knees, her back partly exposed, 
uh, her clothing partly exposed from her back, and she's looking back in terror, waiting for that shaft to come. Yeah. Niobe is glancing up, pleading for help. Yeah, it strikes me that, you know, the, I mean, there's been, a, uh, there's a number of uh, artistic renderings of this, of this story, and none of them uh, that I've come across uh, emphasize her hubris at all. No, it's all it's it, they're it's all, all the pity. It's all pity. It's it's all very sympathetic to a mother losing her children, they, missing out on the entire reason why she was dealt this way. Right. right? Exactly. I mean, it's uh, it's uh, it doesn't tell the whole story. Is that a testimony to Ovid's success in moving us to pity for her? I think so, but it's also it also leads me to appreciate Ovid even more because you know with his poetry he can tell the whole story, and it becomes way more complicated, mm-hmm. right, than, than uh, I mean, it's... It, it, it's and as de- we've established, that's the job of academics, right? To find things, that, to see things that aren't there? Yes, to complicate things. Right. <laughs> and Ovid's very good at that. He is. Right? He's great. So to focus just on the suffering of Niobe, it, it, makes, it makes for a very moving visual sculpture, um, but it only really tells half the story. Right. Right. So I prefer Ovid. Mm-hmm. Well, Jeff, we got to get out of here. We do. Yeah. Uh, Someone wants to use the vomitorium. They do tonight already? Yeah, they want to rent it. Who, who is this? It's the NGA. NGA. The National Granola Association. They're going to use the vomitorium? They have a meeting. It's their annual meeting. Uh, they're just going to talk about granola or they're going to brew up a batch? Uh, I don't think you brew granola. I oh. think you bake it. Yeah, it shows how little I know. Yeah. <laughs> There's a large subject. <laughs> Chop it up into little bits and stuff it into foil wrappers. It's a complicated business. Oh. Long recipes. Okay. The NGA called me up this week and said, hey, we want to use your space for our future granola plans. And you said, that sounds great. That's a, that's a date. Let's do it. Okay. Sounds good. So we got to get out of here. We got to thank a number of people. Yep. We got to thank Ken Tamplin and Scott Vincent for the great music you hear throughout the podcast. Mm-hmm. We got to thank Mishka, our engineer who makes us sound better than we are. Right. Um, we've got to remind people to to contact us. Yes. I got a great email today from a fan in Germany and uh, he's going to get a shout out pretty soon. So Excellent. People all over the world. We're going international again. <laughs> yeah. This is great. It's amazing, Dr. Winkle. Yep. You know, we started this, if I can, you know, wax nostalgic. Please do. Uh, nostalgia ain't what it used to be, of course, but we started this little podcast a year ago uh, with, you know, not much ambition, not much talent, and um, it's taken a hold a little bit. Yeah, we're reaching people. We are. That's right. Great. What's the phrase you like to use? Uh, they're catching on and catching up. Correct. Yep. So please contact us. Uh, you can write to me at jeff at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Or you can contact Dave, Dave at adnauseum.com. Again, don't forget the V. We love uh, your suggestions. Uh, Tell us a little about yourself if you want a shout out. We've got some great fan art. People are sending us fan art. It's great. (laughs) It's 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 so entertaining. You know who you are out there. We're very amused. We love it. We love it. And next week is to be determined. Yeah, TBD. Yep. Yep. So we decided we're not going to do another uh, set of Ovidian vignettes. We're going to space those out a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, but we're going to think about it, right? Yep. Try to bring a quality product to the audience. Going to keep you kind of on your toes, like mm-hmm. like I think like Abbott would, would right. want. Yeah. We are going to be giving away uh, the Lombardo translation. We have two copies, mm-hmm. Compliments of Hackett, and the Ambrose translation. We have two copies of that as well. So stay tuned to our social media channels so that you can tag your friends and so forth and get in the drawing for one of these great volumes so that when we cover the stories, you can read along. Excellent. And Dave, you have our gustatory parting shot. I do. This one comes from a Mr. Robert Black. And he says, i got to say, um, before I read it, yeah, Ovid would go along with this, I think. Yeah. Because it has a kind of a somber, sad tone a little bit. Okay. Robert Black says, quote, when you realize you cannot eat or drink money, the pursuit of it becomes senseless. Ooh. Ooh. That's a cool note to end on. It is. It? But thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.